I'm told that the very first thing that Herbert Jackson did as he, well, first thing that he realized as he began his missionary um, stint overseas was that the car that he had been given was very, very dysfunctional. It wasn't working. It wouldn't start. And so going over to the nearby school, he got permission from the principal to have some of the students come and give him a push, um, after which he would try to get the car started. And so for two years, Jackson would either park on a hill or leave the ignition running. Now, before long, he became ill and had to return to the States. And so he was explaining to his replacement how the car worked. And so this guy took some time to look under the hood, and he soon realized that there was a cable that needed to be adjusted. And so he said, Mr. Jackson, I'm afraid all that is wrong with your car is that it just needs the cable to be tightened, which he did. He entered the car and, believe it or not, turned the ignition, and the car started. All that that car needed was the touch of a mechanic, in the very same way that the lady in our text this morning needed the master's touch. Luke chapter 8, we'll read verses 41 to 48. Pastor Ben touched on uh, Jairus, uh, Jairus' daughter last week. Um, we are going to just uh, mention that in passing and draw some, some things from that as well. And there came a man named Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Now, right at the outset of this message this morning, I want to ask you two questions. First of which is this, have you ever been touched by Jesus? And then the second of those two questions is this. Have you ever touched Jesus? Both of these questions are important. Have you ever been touched by Jesus? Has Jesus ever, I'm sorry, have you ever touched Jesus? And have you ever been touched by him? Jesus often comes to where we are in, in our times of desperation, and he touches us if we let him. There are times, however, when we must push through obstacles, whatever they are, 
to touch Jesus for ourselves. Now, I don't know how it happens that Jesus touches us or that we touch him. I just know that it happens. It happens. And I just know that there is nothing we need this morning, you and I, as much as we need the touch of Jesus in our lives. Here's our first point this morning. Sometimes it is about who is more desperate for Jesus' touch. Sometimes it is about who is more desperate for the touch of Jesus. Now, I, do I mean by that that we have to compete for Jesus' attention? No, we don't have to compete at all. What I mean is that desperation that is mixed with radical faith often makes Jesus stop and take attention. Can I say that again? Desperation, when we are in times of desperation, when we are desperate for something to happen in our lives, if we exercise radical faith, that often makes Jesus stop from whatever he's doing and pay attention. We're going to see that very clearly in this text this morning. We see this over and over again in Scripture, that people who are desperate and who mix their desperation with radical faith somehow they get Jesus' attention. So Jesus, in our text, is on his way to respond to an important request from Jairus. Because, you see, his 12-year-old daughter is dying. It's dying. That is a desperate situation, wouldn't you say? If you have a 12-year-old girl in your house who is dying, that is desperate. And yet, Jesus is interrupted by an unnamed woman with an embarrassing 12-year-old condition. Now, I don't know what the relationship is between a 12-year-old girl and a 12-year condition, but somehow they're linked together. Both situations are desperate. Now, which of the two will Jesus prioritize? Let me ask you the question, how would you feel if you brought before Jesus, as Jairus does in our text, a situation that you think is a top priority for you, and therefore it should be a top priority for Jesus, and you bring that to him, and you painstakingly laid out before him, only to find that he seems more interested in responding to somebody else's situation. How does that make you feel? Does it make you feel rejected? disrespected, or unimportant. I believe that Jairus must have thought to himself, surely my daughter's situation is more urgent, is more desperate. And so Jesus should give greater priority to me because after all, my 12-year-old girl is dying and she's only 12 years old. She has a whole life ahead of her. High school graduation, college perhaps, a career, marriage, children, not necessarily in that order, but she is in a desperate situation. Surely my daughter is of greater priority in this situation. Wouldn't you think so if you were the mother in this case or the father even? 
And the woman who interrupts Jesus must have thought to herself, my situation has to be the more dire of the two because after all, I have suffered 12 years of bleeding. That bleeding has left me feeling tired, unclean, and ashamed. Because you see, my family needs me, but according to the laws of our religion, I can't even be with my husband. I can't care for my children. I can't have girlfriends come over to my house. I can't go to the store. I can't do anything because I am unclean. I am ostracized. I have emptied out my bank accounts before multiple doctors, and I have not gotten any better. In fact, I'm told that she try, may have tried all kinds of homeopathic remedies as well, including these two, which really got a laugh out of me. She would have gone around carrying the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen cloth all summer, and then in some other kind of cloth, uh, uh, cotton cloth all winter. She may have even carried around a barley corn found in the dung of a white female donkey. All, all of that to no avail. She wasn't getting any better. And so after having done all of that, she must have concluded, my situation is more urgent. Jesus should prioritize my situation over this man's situation. You may say that justice and fairness demands that Jesus prioritize Jairus. Because after all, he had gotten to Jesus first, did he not? He had asked Jesus first to go heal his daughter. He must have traveled some distance to get to Jesus. But you might say that this woman was a Johnny-come-lately because she, she got to Jesus second. And somebody who asks of you a favor first, you need to prioritize them over the other person. And yet... Jesus decides to prioritize the woman over Jairus. Now let us note, first of all, that this woman wasn't supposed to be where she was. She wasn't supposed to be before Jesus, but she is. She isn't supposed to touch Jesus, but she does. She's unclean, and the, her, the laws of her religion dictated that if you were unclean, you had to isolate. You had to be in quarantine. You couldn't be around healthy people. You couldn't touch them. But she does touch Jesus. And this was no ordinary touch either. This was a touch of desperation. I wonder if I'm speaking to anybody this morning who is in a desperate situation. You can't get out of it. You've been in it for a while, 12 years, 20 years, 30 even, and your situation has become dire and desperate. You just might need to touch Jesus this morning, to push through whatever and touch him or have him touch you. But what I noticed about this woman is that she had told herself, she had convinced herself, she had calculated in her own mind that her only hope of ever being healed of this 12-year condition was by touching Jesus. 
And so I'm sure that her thought process must have gone something like this. If I can only touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. I don't need, I don't need to raise my hand. I don't need to make a scene. I don't need to raise my voice. I don't need to even go to the altar. Not that there's anything wrong with going to the altar. I happen to, find, I happen to believe that going to the altar in a moment of desperation to pour out your heart before God is something that we all should do. But she concluded, I don't need to do anything other than touch Jesus' garments. Not even his, all of his garments, but just the very fringe of it, the hem of it. If I can push through the crowd and touch the hem of his garment, I believe that I will be healed. That was her calculation. Desperation should drive us to touch Jesus. Desperation says, I am not going to wait on Jesus to get to me because with such a crowd that is pressing around him, he may never. And so I will push through any obstacle that is before me in order to get to him. I will not sit around waiting for him to get to me. I will push through the crowd I will push through my sickness. I will push through my embarrassment, my shame, my anxiety, my whatever. Because if I could only be in his presence and touch his garments, I will be healed. I believe this morning that desperation makes you push. You ever heard of what the acronym PUSH means? It means pray until something happens. Push. I'm told that one night, God appeared to a man in a dream, in a vision, and God says to him, I have some work for you to do. You see that massive rock God told him? I want you to push against it with all your might. And so setting his shoulders squarely against the rock, the man pushed with all of his might, day after day after day, but nothing happened. And so every evening he would return home sore from pushing. He would return home worn out, feeling that his entire day had been a waste of time. And so just before giving up that assignment, he decided that he would pray one last time. He says in his prayer, Lord, I have labored long and hard. I've used all my strength to do what you asked, yet... I haven't been able to budge that rock even by a half a millimeter. Why am I such a failure, he asks. Here's God's response to him. The only, thing I asked you to, the only thing I asked of you was to push against the rock with all of your strength. Never once did I mention that you were to move it. Look at yourself. Your arms have become muscular your hands calloused, and your legs massive. Through opposition, you have grown much, and your abilities now surpass what they used to be. You haven't moved the rock, but you've pushed. Now, my friend, I will move the rock. Desperation makes us push until God touches us or we touch him. But here's what we do in times of desperation. Rather than pushing, what we do is complaining. And we tell our friends, 
and we agonize, and we do all of that stuff, and Jesus says to us, no, push, pray until you touch me or I touch you. Let our desperation drive us to push. Here's my second point. Sometimes it is about playing the long game. So the first point was sometimes it is about who is the more desperate. That's more an immediate kind of a thing. But sometimes God would have us play the long game. Except that your situation and mine, these are no games to Jesus. It's not a game at all that Jairus' 12-year-old daughter was lying in bed at home dying. Although he made him wait while he addressed a woman who interrupted him while he was on his way. Your situation is not a game to Jesus. But sometimes he will make you wait while he attends to somebody else's situation that seems less urgent than yours. In your own mind, this situation over here that Jesus is attending to right now, that should wait. Mine is more dire. Why is he addressing that and not mine? Sometimes he will have you wait while he attends somebody else's situation that, leads, that seems far less urgent than yours. And you and I are going to have to be okay with that. Can I say that again? You and I are going to have to be okay with Jesus addressing somebody else's situation that we consider to be less dire than ours. I want us to notice that Jairus didn't become angry at Jesus. He didn't become angry at him for attending to this woman who interrupted him while he was on his way to his house. In case you didn't know, I believe you do, but just in case you didn't know, being, becoming angry at Jesus doesn't necessarily help our situation, does it? Doesn't help our situation at all. But waiting on Jesus will. And so, if you are made to wait on Jesus while somebody else who is just as desperate for a miracle receives their miracle, you are going to have to be okay with that, and I'm going to have to be okay with that. I have had a situation called severe sleep apnea. How many of you know what sleep apnea is? Yeah, I've had it for 20 years. Can't tell you how desperately I have prayed. God, please take this thing away. Heal this situation. Hasn't gotten better. I've got to be okay with that. Jairus was asked to play the long game, the game of waiting, waiting while Jesus addressed somebody else's situation. And, you know, based on the human tendency, it is never easy to wait on God for something that we need while we see somebody else having their need met by Jesus. It's never easy. It's never easy to see someone else healed of their issue while you, who got to Jesus first, has been asked to wait. Wait in line. It is never easy to see your 12-year-old issue unaddressed while somebody who just has come with an immediate issue, that seems to be taken care of and you have been waiting for 12 years. And Jesus has not addressed that. 
It's never easy to see Jesus provide somebody else with a life's partner while you have been waiting all of your life and you're made to wait in singleness. Here's another thing that is never easy for another woman. It's never easy to see another woman cradling a baby when you have prayed all your life. God, please, bless me with one. And you're left with open I'm sorry, with empty womb and empty arms. Sometimes Jesus makes you play the long game of waiting while he addresses somebody else's situation that is less dire than yours. One of the persons in scripture who had to play the long game was the psalmist David, King David even. If you read David's psalms, you'd realize that many times he saw other people prospering while he himself remained in distress. Sometimes David seemed to have been caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place. Sometimes he was at the point where he was weary of waiting, and at other times he had to caution himself to continue waiting. And so in Psalm 69 and verse 3, this, these are David's words, I am weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. I have been waiting and yet God hasn't shown up for me. And then in Psalm 27 and verse 14, he literally cautions himself to continue waiting, difficult as that was. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. David is talking to himself here, cautioning himself to wait. And so playing the long game is never easy, but sometimes that is exactly what God will ask of us to do while he tests us to know what is in our heart. That's why God tests us, to know what is in our heart, to know whether or not our desire for him is more important than any desire that we want from him. Sometimes that is why God has us play the long game to test whether our desire for him is more important than what we need from him. Here's our third and final point this morning. At all times, it is about his extraordinary power. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And I believe this morning, and I'm sure that you do, that there is nothing like the power of Jesus. When he asks, whether he asks us to play the long game or he blesses us with an immediate answer, it is always accomplished by the power of Jesus. So this woman touched Jesus. And when she touched Jesus, something happened inside him that caused something to happen inside her. Notice, notice the chain reaction. She touched Jesus. Something happened inside him when she did, which caused something to happen inside her. And so it is from Jesus' own lips that we learn what happened inside him. And it is from the woman's lips that we learned what happened inside her. Jesus tells us that he perceived, he became aware that power went out from him. What kind of power 
are we talking about? We're talking about extraordinary power. We're talking about the power that accomplishes in the woman what the doctors say could not be accomplished. I don't know what your situation is in terms of having gone to doctors with situations that you have. And we know that very often doctors tell us, hey, I've done as much as I can do. Um, this can't be done. And yet in this case, the power that went out from Jesus accomplished in the woman what the doctors had told her for 12 years could not be done medically. Now let's ask ourselves a question. What was it that caused this power to go out from Jesus? I believe it was extraordinary faith. Extraordinary faith releases extraordinary power from Jesus to do extraordinary things. Now, I don't know how it works. I just know that it works. That extraordinary faith releases extraordinary power from Jesus to do what the doctors say can be done. Now let's examine the woman's own actions and words, because these are going to drive home the point I just made. Trembling and falling down before Jesus, she declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Notice she makes a declaration. What does she declare? She declared that she had touched Jesus and she declared why she had touched him. So first of all, she told them that she was the one who touched him. And then secondly, she declared why it was that she had touched him. And why she had touched Jesus was because she had a faith calculation in her head. She had made this calculation that if she could only touch the hem of his garment, she would in fact be healed. I asked myself, who told her that? How did she come to make that conclusion? I believe that God told her to push. I believe that God caused in her spirit the awareness that she needed to push. God gave her the measure of faith to believe that she would be healed if she risked touching the hem of Jesus' garment. It's always a risk to touch Jesus, you know. Not a risk in terms of what he will do, because he will respond. But you have to deal with the embarrassment. Because touching Jesus sometimes is a very humiliating thing. You have to admit to yourself, first of all, that you haven't been able to fix your issue. So it requires humility. People are going to look at you a certain way because you don't kneel anymore before Jesus. You fix your issue. So it's a risk. And I ask you this morning, what are you willing to risk to get to Jesus? What are you willing to risk? So she declared that she was the one who would touch Jesus. Secondly, she declared how she had been immediately healed. The moment she touched Jesus, she felt in her body that this bleeding that had existed for 12 years had stopped. So what the doctors couldn't have done in 12 years, the extraordinary power of Jesus accomplished 
instantly, the moment that she touched Jesus. Now Jesus makes a declaration. So she has just declared that she was the one who touched Jesus. She declared how she had been healed. And now Jesus makes his own declaration over her, which is this. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. A daughter is a term of endearment, isn't it? You don't just call anybody daughter. You call your daughter daughter. That's an affectionate endearing term. And so her faith made her a member of God's family. Her faith made her physically well, and her faith allowed Jesus to say to her, go in peace. Who doesn't need God's peace this morning? Who doesn't need to leave this place knowing that all is well, that it is well between them and God? So this is a story about how extraordinary faith releases the extraordinary power of Jesus to do extraordinary things. Here's our bottom line this morning. Getting to Jesus, however you can, is better than waiting around for him to get to you. Now, he will get to you. Jesus will always do that. But getting to him however you can is better than sitting around and just waiting for him to get to you. Here's our first application point this morning. I want to challenge you, if you're here this morning, or if you are viewing us virtually, and you're not in a relationship with God, I want to challenge you to become a child of God. Become a child of God. Now, becoming a child of God is not something that you can do on your own. You don't just become born by yourself. Somebody has to give birth to you. It is the death of Christ which accomplishes your own spiritual birth. As you confess faith in Jesus Christ, as you repent of your sins, as you allow Christ to be born in your heart, you become a child of God. That is what I'm asking you to do this morning. If you're here today, and you cannot confess that you are either a daughter of God or a son of God. Today's your day to ask him to make you a child of God. Let us pray together this morning. And I want to ask you, I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand today. I'm just going to ask you to pray in your heart that God would make you his son or daughter. Just say those words to him. Just say something like, God, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Today I turn away from them and I invite Jesus to be my Savior and my Lord. That's all you need to pray. And if you pray that prayer in faith, God answers it. And the moment that you pray it, you become a child of God. Just take a few more seconds to talk to him however you can. And if you're here and you know of somebody in our midst who is not a Christian, just pray for that person that in this moment God would make them a son or daughter of the Most High God. Amen. The second thing I want to challenge you with as we close 
is to pray for extraordinary faith. That is not to say that you don't have faith. In fact, God has given to each one of us a measure of faith. That is what the scripture tells us. But sometimes it requires more than ordinary faith. It requires extraordinary faith. And I believe that you get that by praying for it. I also believe that you get that by exercising the measure of faith that you have been given so that you have a track record of God doing things for you when you have faith. That's what happened when this man pushed against the rock. His muscles became firm. His feet became strong. His hands became callous because he was pushing. And as you push and as you pray earnestly, God gives you an increased measure of faith that we call extraordinary faith. Here's our final application point this morning as we close. I want to say to you this morning, to all of us, myself included, let nothing keep you from coming to Jesus. Nothing. Not pride, not anxiety, not pain, not stress, not the embarrassment that that might sometimes cause. Let nothing keep you from coming to Jesus. I'm not here talking about coming to him for saving faith. I'm talking about coming to him for his touch. Coming to him to touch him as well. Because you see, I believe with all my heart that the two most important things in our Christian experience is for Jesus to touch us or for us to touch him. And we only do that through our prayers. Let us pray together. God, these stories are there to build our faith. I pray that somebody's faith this morning would have been strengthened. That somebody, Lord God, would have recognized that you're calling us to push, to pray until either we touch you or you touch us. Lord, that is true of us as individuals. That is true of us as a church. Help us to embrace that truth and to live it out to see the extraordinary things that you will do for us when we have extraordinary faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat>